And we're back for another year of episodes of OK Talks, provided I make the effort. So I often frame events, trends, really whatever it is that I'm holding forth about on this show in terms of whether it was good or bad for democracy in my view. And in those terms, well, <laughs> the year 2023 was a pretty bad one for a number of reasons. And today I'm going to explore several of them as a sort of uh, shitty, depressing year in review. Also, you know, Happy New Year. Everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focus and security policy, and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country, and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. Before we get started here, I just want to mention, as I have the last few episodes, a couple months back I started an email list to give folks a ping when a new episode comes out and to set up a more direct way to get in touch, should you feel like it. Send me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com if you want to join, and please do remember to subscribe to OK Talks on whatever platform you listen, and share the show with anybody who might enjoy it, or at least begrudgingly tolerate it. So, this time last year, I was contemplating doing a sort of year-in-review episode of this show, and obviously I got lazy and failed, unfortunately, in a year where I think the news would have been better last year than it was this year. But true to form, I'm here to comment at a time when there is not cause for celebration, but rather for worry on a couple of different fronts. Since I'm physically there at the moment, I think I'll start with the U.S. 2023 saw really the unambiguous return of Donald Trump as a major force in American politics and as the clear leader of one of America's two major political parties, or whatever you call what's left of a thing that was at one point a normal political party and has now been reduced to a wacky personality cult. I mean, think, think about where we were about a year ago. Those of us who would prefer that the US remain a liberal democracy and leader of the free world rather than becoming some bizarre combination of 1930s Italy and the movie Idiocracy, well, this time, about a year ago, we were still riding high after the best midterm election for the party of the incumbent president since the days of FDR. Trump-backed candidates and election, dire and, and election deniers almost all had gotten their asses handed to them. It looked for a minute there like the Republican Party, although unable to quit Trump out of any sense of decency or morality, might be willing to do so because it looked like he was a loser. I mean, sure, it looked like the alternative was going to be Ron DeSantis, who was almost as bad, but... Like, look, maybe, maybe they were, as a party, going to start moving on from being just, like, a weird personality cult. But, no. A year later, Trump is clearly back in the saddle. Ron DeSantis and his weird boots are a running joke. Okay, yes, that part's okay, but Trump is, as I say, unambiguously back. Somehow, the Republican primary field has managed to repeat all of the same mistakes they made in 2016, except even worse. Like, it's, I mean, it's just kind of embarrassing watching these people, a few of whom <laughs> actually seem to take themselves seriously, get up on a debate stage, with which Trump just casually skips, and claw each other's eyes out for an hour and a half for the privilege of inevitably coming in a distant second to a former reality show host who thinks he's running for president against Barack Obama and that Biden is going to start World War II. The even crazier thing about all this is to think about how we got from where we were last year vis-a-vis -vis Trump to where we are now. I mean, the primary news about Donald Trump this last year has been about him being indicted for, like, everything. I mean, okay, yeah, the first one, 
it seemed like small potatoes and that it was the Stormy Daniels hush money one in New York. So we could say that the whole Trump indictment story didn't really start with a bang, <laughs> phrasing. But within the last couple of months of this, like, we got indictments dropping about how Trump like literally just stole reams of classified documents, like America's most important and closely guarded secrets about our national security, the nuclear program, secret military plans for a hypothetical war with Iran. And then, like, not only did he steal them, he seems to have basically alternated between sticking them in the bathroom at his golf club, you know, in case he needed something to read on the toilet, now that he's not active on Twitter anymore, and then just, like, waving around these documents in front of people who were absolutely not clear to see them. I mean, we have the audio recording of him showing the Iran invasion plan to some, like, random biographer of his former chief of staff. I, I, I did a whole episode where I look at the fact of this mind-blowing disregard for America's secrets juxtaposed against the fact that Hillary Clinton basically had her life and career ruined and was denied the presidency to which she was clearly entitled because there may have been a few low-level classified documents buried in her email server next to the wedding invitations and John Podesta's risotto recipe. So I'll avoid going too far down that rabbit hole for now. Episode 51, though, if you haven't heard it already, it's worth a listen. Go check it out. Then, after it came out that Trump had used America's most heavily classified secrets as some bizarre combination of bathroom reading, scratch paper, and prop, he got charged after that with a bunch of crimes around January 6th, and then at the state level in Georgia around his attempts to undermine the election in that state. And then he was adjudicated in New York as being guilty of rape. And then after that, he lost a civil suit, which has made it clear that most of his business activities were basically a fraudulent criminal enterprise. I mean... That one, I will say, represents a real failure of the justice system because he should have been nailed for that years ago and the fact that they waited till now plays into the narrative that they, they, are coming after him now. But still, like, come on, the guy's got a rap sheet longer than Al Capone. That's been the primary story about Donald Trump this year. 2023's primary news about Trump has been Donald Trump criminal... Well, that and the fact that the guy is, like, publicly losing his mind babbling about us starting World War II by supporting Ukraine and something about Obama and various of his dictator buddies getting mixed up. Think about that. Like, like that's it. The main stories about Donald Trump this year have been, one, he's charged with having committed every crime that anyone has ever imagined except wasting food, and two, he's losing his mind. So, like, basically, the bulk of the Republican Party has said this year, yeah, you know, I was starting to think that it was time to move on from this guy after we did badly in the election last fall, but then once I heard him say that Hamas and Hezbollah are very smart and Obama's going to start World War II, I realized, I just can't quit you. I mean, yes, of course, there have also been other like darker things around Trump, too, his having ratcheted up even more the kind of openly fascistic and racist rhetoric about immigrants and domestic political forces that he wants to purge in some way, wink, wink. Then, of course, the various creepy rumoras that have attached themselves to him, putting forward plans like Project 2025 to basically deprofessionalize the entire federal government and replace them with political hacks, thus spelling the end of the competent federal bureaucracy that has existed and, guided by our democracy, has protected and run the most powerful country in the world for more than a century. But... Yeah, really, the primary story of 2023 around Trump has been, one, he's a criminal, two, he's losing his mind. And yet, even with that, and even if a few states decide to knock him off the ballot, as Colorado and Maine have done so far, unless he's convicted in the next, like, two months, unlikely, given how he's been able to keep delaying the various legal cases against him, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential elections. And then at that point... 
the chances of him becoming the 47th and last president of the United States are not bad for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as I've talked about a few episodes back, just about the only thing that the Republican-run House of Representatives has managed to do this year is to replace the soulless hack who led them previously with a wackadoodle, Kool-Aid-drinking, Christian nationalist kook who was one of the principal architects of the scheme to overturn the last presidential election. And if we think this man, Mike Johnson, wouldn't try this time from the position of Speaker of the House to overturn Joe Biden's re-election, <laughs> we're kidding ourselves. Secondly, as I've discussed in really almost any episode of this show in which I come anywhere near talking about American politics, Joe Biden, I believe, will go down in history as just about the most underappreciated American president in the history of the Republic. Since this episode is supposed to be me recapping why I think the year 2023 was a bad one for democracy, I will skip running down the entire laundry list of reasons why I think Biden is easily the best American president since 1968, if not 1944, and just suggest that if you need a reminder, episode 38, 41, 42, 50, <laughs> the point I'm making is that despite Biden being an exceptionally good president, it really seems, driven by perpetual polling of the exact same thing and story after stupid story about his age, that a critical mass of people who should be reliable blue voters in 2024 are just bleh about Joe Biden, which means that the chances of Donald Trump actually just winning the presidency the old-fashioned way through you know, election without Speaker Mike Johnson having to even bother to gin up some chicanery is better than zero. And I don't think I need to go to too much trouble to point out to my audience the reality that a return of Donald Trump to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for any reason besides a one-day prison release to unveil his official portrait would be a very, very bad thing for democracy both in the United States and around the world. Speaking of the rest of the world, one of the things that could be hurting Biden's chances right now is something happening elsewhere, which I'm going to use as my awkward pivot to the Middle East. Now, before I even touch on the conflict happening right now, it was already a bad year for democracy in Israel, as I discussed with my guest Omri Lavi back in episode 37. Now, I've said before that Benjamin Netanyahu is just about the single worst person in elected politics anywhere in the world, and I plan sometime soon on doing an entire episode dedicated just to how much he sucks in the context of the current conflict and how he spent years undermining any chances of any sort of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But even before touching any of that, Netanyahu made serious and scary progress earlier this year in attempting to shred Israel's independent judiciary on behalf of his borderline fascistic governing coalition and his own desire to keep his own corrupt ass out of prison where it belongs. Small update on that. Just over the last few days, the Israeli Supreme Court has struck down a law that Netanyahu and his allies passed as part of that undemocratic effort, and the far-right forces in Israel predictably are bleating that them having done so undermines national unity at a time of war, which is, you know, a little rich, since they were the ones who undermined national unity in the first place by trying to turn Israel from a relatively pluralistic democracy into an undemocratic theocracy, which, you know, probably made them more vulnerable to the attack that came on October 7th. Whatever you may think of Israel vis-a-vis -vis the way they've handled the Palestinians, the reality is that at least in Israel proper, that is to say excluding the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip, it is the only thing in its neighborhood that even remotely looks like a real democracy, especially after what happened in Turkey earlier this year. Oh hey, <laughs> there's another reason this year was a bad one for democracy. So this last spring, Turkey had what was probably its last real shot to get rid of its neo-Sultan Recep Tayyip Erdogan, 
who has single-handedly rolled back a century of progress in that country. And they fail. To be fair, yes, the Turkish people have been the victims of like a decade of heavy-handed tactics and aggressively pro-regime propaganda, so, you know, you maybe can't blame them entirely, but at the end of the day, the Turkish people collectively decided to blow their last chance to remain a Western-facing secular democracy, wherein the majority just happened to be Muslim, and instead went with the almost comically corrupt authoritarian Islamist who has wrecked that country's economy, destroyed any semblance of freedom of the press, and spat on the memory of the country's modern founder, Kamal Ataturk, by undoing a century of secular progress and turning the country into a bastion of political Islam. Well done, guys. Moving back to Israel, yeah. As badly as successive Israeli governments under Benjamin Netanyahu have treated the Palestinians in the occupied territories, Israel is the only thing even remotely resembling a democracy in a neighborhood of totalitarianism, be that in the form of religious extremists, vicious secular dictatorships, or some flavor of monarchy. And this, this has not been a good year for that one democracy. First, because of what I described earlier, the ascension of the, the most right-wing anti-democratic coalition in Israel's history and its subsequent attempt to shred the independent judiciary. To be fair, I think some of the fundamentally good character of Israel, again, whatever you may think of the circumstances of Israel's founding or the situation with the Palestinians now, that fundamentally good sort of core, I think, showed itself in the form of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of secular liberal Israelis out in the street protesting the attempts by Netanyahu to effectively end Israeli democracy. But tragically, what really seems to have blunted those moves by Netanyahu were the absolutely horrific attacks of October 7th. And those attacks by Hamas and the war that's resulted from them has also had ripple effects that are bad for democracy elsewhere in the world. And let's be clear, what's happening now in this latest war in Gaza is I mean, it's just awful. I mean, it's, it's a human tragedy on a massive scale. You don't have to, like, hate Israel or be an avowed anti-Zionist in order to be deeply worried about the fate of individual Palestinians who are experiencing almost unimaginable suffering right now. And whether or not you believe the casualty numbers put out by the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry, it's obvious that way too many people are dying, way too many of them are children, and whoever you blame for this latest cycle of violence, anybody with a soul should want this to be over as soon as possible and then for it to absolutely never happen again. That being said, as, as cold as this runs the risk of sounding in contrast, the way to make sure that it never happens again is for the people of Gaza to no longer be under the thumb of a terrorist organization that denies them their most basic rights and the most basic of resources and then uses their territory as a staging point to launch ultimately futile war crimes against the country next door. Dislodging Hamas from control in the Gaza Strip over the long term could, and we have to hope and actively push for it to be, a good thing, both for Israel and especially the Palestinians, since A, I don't see how Netanyahu is going to be able to recover politically from what happened on October 7th, and what's bad for Netanyahu is good for Israel, Israeli democracy, and the Palestinians, and B, there could never have been a Palestinian state while Hamas was in direct control of the Gaza Strip. It would not have happened. And Hamas was not just like one day going to turn in its guns and go home and give up power. So if you believe in a Palestinian state... So this or something like it was eventually going to have to happen one way or another. And now, maybe, maybe, the combination of October 7th and the fallout from this war will be enough to convince a critical mass of Israelis that the status quo ante cannot resume. With Hamas out of the way, 
Their primary excuse for neglecting the peace process will no longer be a factor. They need to restart the peace process and to be very serious about it. And maybe also some of the Arab states will start to be more reasonable about pushing for a realistic peace and a two-state solution. And it does look like Egypt actually recently started making moves in that direction, and now Hamas has rejected the ceasefire that Egypt proposed. Like, this, this has to happen. Israel has to, as I say, make serious moves toward a peace with the Palestinians, as they had been doing before the Netanyahu era. While I maintain that Israel, again, at least within Israel proper and not including the occupied territory, is a democracy, and equating it like with apartheid South Africa is factually inaccurate and you know, also rather offensive. That being said, though, I don't see how it'll be able to stay anything like a democracy over the long term if they continue to be in a position of maintaining military rule over a group of people in the occupied West Bank and now Gaza who do not want them there. Having to run a counterinsurgency forever tends to not be good for either the character of the nation in question or the people that they are ruling over. But as I say, the ripple effects outside the Middle East of this war have, I think, been bad for democracy globally in a number of different ways. Uh, but before going any further down this rabbit hole here, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I do just want to state for the record that it's totally legitimate to criticize the Israeli government, criticize the, the way they've treated the Palestinians over time, level war crimes accusations, call for a ceasefire, whatever. That's all totally valid. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Lots of people who are loudly criticizing Israel right now are doing so in a way that is completely above board and... Also, equating any and all criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is both a cheap rhetorical cop-out and ultimately counterproductive in the fight to end anti-Semitism. That being said, on the other hand, a decent bit of the criticism of Israel that I've seen since October 7th quite easily crosses the line from legitimate and valid critique into the territory of anti-Semitism. Now, both the U.S. State Department and the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, among others, I believe, specifically mention double standards double standards being a, a common part of modern anti-Semitism and holding Israel to a vastly different standard than you would any other country at war, as does happen a lot, well, yeah, that does quack like a duck, just as one example. Or at a more basic level, the implication that Israel simply does not have the same right to exist as does any other country and the eight or so million citizens of the world's only Jewish state should simply stop what they're doing and walk into the ocean? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's anti-Semitism. Even if you think that Israel should never have been founded in the first place, which <laughs> I'll save that debate for another day, to paraphrase Ali Rizvi, as I've done in every episode so far while I've talked about this, it's been 75 years. Neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians in the territories have anywhere else to go. And if one were to suggest that either of those groups simply die or leave, well, let's be clear, one is calling for genocide. And before you poo-poo the idea that that's not actually a widespread sentiment or, you know, it's only just, you know, a couple of extremists in the Middle East. No, it's not. I I've personally heard that sentiment expressed quite a number of times from people uh, in Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East of North a and North Africa, and yes, from lots of people in the West who like to think of themselves as being progressives. The idea that the Jews of Israel simply don't have a right to exist and should either leave Israel or die <laughs> is way more widespread than we would like to think. 
And that sort of nonsense makes up just the crest of the absolute tidal wave of anti-Semitism globally that's been unleashed by the Hamas attacks of October 7th and the resulting war. In the city where I live, for example, Jewish-owned businesses have been vandalized, which is happening certainly beyond just Barcelona. In the huge anti-Israel marches in various Western capitals since this all started, many people in the crowds have waved flags from groups like Hamas or ISIS, the Islamic State, and... You know, people chant various flavors of the from the river to the sea thing, including the more on-the-nose genocide from the river to the sea Palestine will be Arab version of the chant. And yes, even the more tame version is at least subtly genocidal if you listen to it and actually take a second to look at a map and understand what it means. And if from the river to the sea Palestine will be Arab is too subtle to convince people that at least some of the anti-Israel activism has crossed the line from legitimate criticism into genocidal anti-Semitism, well, there's a lot of footage of large crowds at anti-Israel protests in Western capitals chanting, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. Now, in addition to just being repugnant to pull myself back out of the rabbit hole of global anti-Semitism and bring it back to the bad year for democracy theme of this episode, this anti-Semitism is, I would argue, itself very bad for democracy. Because it means that a lot of liberal Western countries are going to have to either basically accept that they now play host to a critical mass of people whose views are basically bigoted and genocidal, or those countries are going to have to take steps against that. Steps that stand a pretty reasonable chance of themselves being fairly anti-democratic in the long run. Furthermore, high levels of anti-Semitism don't usually correlate to stable, productive, and free societies. I mean, just in general, societies that are rife with conspiracy theory don't tend to do well. Anti-Semitism is like the ultimate conspiracy theory. There are a number of historical examples of this that are all tragic to varying degrees, and inevitably it hurts more than just Jewish people. We've all heard the first they came for the Jews, but I did not speak out because I was not a Jew thing. And we all know how that verse ends. Here in the U.S., according to FBI statistics, even before the attacks of October 7th and the awful war that they triggered, Jews were the victims of about 60%, 6 of all religious-based hate crimes in the country. Now, just for context, only about 2% of the population of the U.S. is Jewish. So, we were already not in a great place on this. I also want to be sure and mention here, although statistically anti-Semitism makes up a far greater percentage of the hate crimes we see, there have been in the U.S. since October 7th several tragic and really awful occasions of hate crimes against Palestinian Americans, which are just as individually despicable and also obviously don't exactly, you know, help weave the fabric of a stable and united democratic society. Speaking of, in addition to causing a sort of global wave of anti-Semitism, which just in general is usually a bad thing for democracies, the ripple effect of the situation in the Middle East seems to possibly be hurting Joe Biden domestically, which I, again, would argue is also bad for democracy, considering the alternative. For the record, Biden has, in my estimation, handled this situation very well. In the wake of the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, the president appropriately supported our strongest ally in the Middle East and has quietly in the time since tried to rein in the worst excesses of the Netanyahu government in their response. And now more and more not quietly, as the administration's becoming quite a lot more publicly critical of how Israel is handling Gaza and has pushed for humanitarian pauses. But the way Biden's handled this, I mean, I don't see what else he could have done here. I mean, if on October 7th, Biden had basically come out and demanded that Israel not go after a terrorist organization that had just launched thousands of rockets at Israel's civilians, at least the ones they didn't manage to rape, mutilate, or murder by hand, 
Well, the Israelis wouldn't have listened to a word he said. Whereas now, although I admit I'm starting to think it's time to put more pressure on the Israeli government in public, Biden's a lot more popular in that country than that country's own prime minister is, and is thus a lot better positioned to shape Israel's behavior here over the long term, and I hope push them towards some of the things that I was saying earlier that they absolutely have to do. And while one can reasonably differ with how Biden has handled some aspects of this, no reasonable person who actually has followed American politics for more time than it takes to watch a couple of TikTok videos could look at the situation and say, you know, I was going to vote for Biden, uh, but he didn't single-handedly upend a half-century of American foreign policy by abandoning a key ally, so now I'm going to vote for Donald Trump, the one who really cares about the plight of Palestinian civilians. That being said, there are a lot of non-reasonable people in America who do vote, so there is at least some possibility of that happening to a, to a degree, thus representing yet another threat to democracy stemming from the Hamas attacks of October 7th and the resulting Israeli campaign to destroy the organization. So in addition to causing the death, disfigurement, and or a lifetime of psychological trauma for thousands of innocent Israelis and Palestinians and massive societal tension around the world, that situation in the Middle East has also contributed to 2023 being a bad year for democracy directly to the north. 2023 was already turning out to not be a great year for Ukraine, even before the shiny object of a new war in the Middle East redirected global attention away from the brutal and imperialist campaign by the Russians to gobble up the liberal democracy next door. Expectations were probably set too high for the Ukrainian counteroffensive that was supposed to happen this past summer. Also, although overall I give super high marks to President Biden for how he's held together the global coalition to back Ukraine and for the amount of military aid we've sent, I've also been one of the people who's been kind of frustrated at this pattern we seem to keep repeating, where Ukraine asks for a certain weapons system, and then the West dithers and says no for whatever reason for like eight months, and then finally does just end up giving them the weapons system after all. After, that is to say, a whole bunch of valuable time has gone down the tubes as we ask ourselves yet again, yeah, but what if this time the Russians actually do get angry? When it comes to the giant counteroffensive this year that never really materialized, I'm particularly annoyed about how long it took for us to send F-16s and other air superiority fighters to the Ukrainians. Because, like, a bunch of people are over here like, oh my god, why is it taking them so long? When, you know, like, our military would never even consider launching some sort of offensive without having air superiority, which is kind of hard to have when you don't have the fighters you need to achieve it, and then when you finally do get them, you need at least a couple of months to train your pilots on the new platform. Plus, the, the Russians have now had time to dig in in the eastern part of Ukraine that they stole in the first month or two of the war, and also Putin has clearly calculated that his best move is to basically just feed as many Russian bodies into the meat grinder as necessary in order to keep this up until Donald Trump has a chance to waddle his fat ass back into the White House. Putin's also clearly calculated for a long time that eventually the West would get bored and move on to something else and yeah, well, now there's a war in the Middle East, which in addition to of course being horrible for everyone directly affected, has also had the added impact of shifting attention away from Ukraine. This may be part of why the Russians have maintained ties to Hamas and allegedly funneled them support. Either that or they just look at a group of people hand-murdering and raping unarmed civilians on a massive scale and saw a kindred spirit. In any case, yeah, not a good year for Ukraine's war to maintain its freedom. 
The fact that the Republicans in Congress couldn't get their shit together to send more aid, even when that aid was tied to aid for Israel, which they ostensibly support after the worst attack in that country's history, says a lot about how much support for Ukraine among its critical Western allies is tenuous, which is scary. Because even if Ukraine was not like a beacon for hope for liberal democracy on the front lines of totalitarianism, a home to an unbelievably brave group of people who have been holding the line against vicious attacks deliberately targeting civilians in a stated attempt by the Russians to effectively erase the Ukrainian people, even if those things weren't the case, massively weakening the military of one of the West's two primary geostrategic antagonists would be a bargain at twice the price, which is why it's so mystifying that so many people in the democratic world, including some in positions of power, don't have the, the attention span, I guess, to see this through. So yeah, not a great year in Ukraine's war for survival. Uh, here's hoping 2024 goes better vis-a-vis -vis everything I've just talked about for the last half hour or so. Those of us who care about liberal democracy should desperately hope for the sake of the free world that the United States does not end this coming year by sliding back into the grubby little hands of the worst human being ever to occupy the Oval Office. We, all, we should also hope for the sake of Israel and even more so for the sake of the millions of innocent Palestinian civilians caught in the crossfire of a seemingly endless conflict that 2024 sees the permanent defeat of Hamas and the groundwork laid for some sort of political settlement in which the Israelis are no longer occupying territory that should form a Palestinian state. And finally, among the many other things we should hope for in this next year, we should keep doing everything in our power to support Ukraine and its people as it fights for its freedom and you know its very existence. This year, 2023, for me, both in terms of politics in a number of places around the world and actually sort of in my own life as well, has, has felt like one of stagnation. You know, pick your analogy, sort of stuck in the mud, fallen and can't get up. I don't know. I mean, 2024, on the other hand, in a number of different places, has the potential to be a year in which really big things happen, which could be really good or really bad. Just off the top of my head, the US, India, Mexico, El Salvador, various other countries have elections this coming year. And in way more of those elections than should be the case, the thing that seems like it's on the line is not just who's going to temporarily rule the country, but the very survival of democracy itself and the country in question. So, you know, yeah, this, this is probably going to be a pretty eventful year. I just hope that uh, this time next year, if I do an episode like this, I have better news. In any case, that's it for this, the first episode of OK Talks of 2024. If you like the show and want to make sure not to miss the next episode, please be sure to follow on whatever platform you listen or shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com to be added to the email list. Also, I will start this year by reiterating what I said the last few episodes. Please do feel free to reach out if you have ideas for the show, a topic you'd be interested in hearing me weigh in on, someone you think I should have on. I, I can't promise I'll always be able to answer or do so very quickly, but I mean it. I really do love hearing from you. Oktalkspodcast at gmail.com. If you really want to do me a solid, please do go ahead and share the show with anyone you think might get something out of it. To anybody who already has, thanks. To any who will, thanks in advance. Thanks as always to Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to everyone else for listening. Happy New Year. <laughs>